1: Welcome back to Drilled, I'm Amy Westervelt. This month, we are re-releasing season one of Drilled about the origins of climate denial. That's because a new peer-reviewed study in the journal Science has just been published showing that scientists working for Exxon in the 70s and 80s predicted climate change with alarming accuracy. I spoke with the lead author of that study, Jeffrey Supran, about how the media has reacted to it and where he plans to turn his attention next.
2: It's been an interesting exercise in climate communication and, yeah, somewhat humbling in that, like, I couldn't completely foresee how it was going to be received. I think that there is also something probably in the fact that we publish this in Science, which, you know, obviously yeah. is maybe one of the most prestigious journals that there is. I don't really know how that works. If there's that extra level of credibility for, you know, maybe the journalists outside of climate reporting who are less familiar with us and our work, for whom that journal carries extra weight, you know, so it's an interest, it's been like an interesting kind of exercise. In I think that's
1: probably true. They know that the peer review process is really intensive and that, science doesn't just publish anything and all of that, I think.
2: Yeah, I can confirm that that's the case.
1: <laughs> yeah. Years worth,
2: yeah. years. I think that, you know, the part of the power of this work we've been doing is developing all these computational and statistical tools which are very quickly translatable to new data. And so yeah. we have all these techniques at our disposal now as new documents come to light that we can... Reproduce some of these methods and and extend them, but I'm also excited to kind of move in new directions.
1: I was going to ask you that: Are you are you excited to look at any company but
3: Exxon for the <laughs> next <all>?
2: <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's obviously just mostly a pragmatic reality that reflects the fact that there's been the most journalistic and historical work to uncover Exxon. Yeah, so it's just we're able to to do the most exhaustive and and yield the best perspective on this entity because we have this large trove of documents. But yeah, I mean a lot of my work going forwards is, you know, I'm interested in the evolution from, you know, denial to delay and you know, very contemporary talking points that we're seeing now, especially on, you know, on social media and other digital platforms. And so that's kind of the way that a lot of my my current work is headed. And and obviously, you know, that involves a lot of players beyond just your exons and your BPs and your shells and things there's also all these influencer groups going on and looking at the way discourses percolate through society you know it's not necessarily always fossil fuel interests themselves putting it out now but it's sort of like how, how are those messages kind of you know morphing through society and, and social media gives us like a really unique lens through which to, to tap into that
1: Coming up after the break, campaigns so successful they've landed in court. A look at the results that climate denial campaigns delivered for fossil fuel companies and the wave of climate liability cases attempting to hold them accountable. previously on Drilled.
4: Among that set of of dedicated research centers that are really influential in technology research and training, you know, future people working in climate, also influencing the IPCC, that a majority, I would say a majority of funding in those centers comes from fossil fuel groups.
1: Most of what we know about oil company social influence campaigns has been dug up over the past five years by journalists, particularly Neela Banerjee and David Hassmeyer at Inside Climate News, Suzanne Rust, who led the investigation at Columbia School of Journalism that was printed in the Los Angeles Times, and The Guardian. Independent investigators like Kurt Davies and Scott Peterson have also contributed to that knowledge. New Yorker reporter Jane Mayer's incredible investigative work into the Koch brothers, published in the book Dark Money, has provided key insights too. But long before any of these investigations kicked off, lawyers were digging up this stuff too.
4: They did such a good job that the public is more skeptical of climate change now than the oil companies are.
0: As it means to change the public's perspective on things, I think they may be very valuable, that's that's my opinion, it's just like, if we could get the public to say, yeah, you know what, there really was a lot of damage done, and yeah, yeah, we're part of it, but we we certainly weren't in a position to make these educated decisions the way that people at Exxon or people in other oil companies were, they were fully aware. Not
3: unlike Big Tobacco, the oil companies here, their internal documents make the case of their knowledge and their cover-up.
0: We recognize that
5: global warming is a serious issue, but this kind of lawsuit is counterproductive, and it's just legally flawed.
1: More than a decade ago, an environmental lawyer named Matt Powa brought the first suit that tried to hold a company responsible for inaction on climate change. He represented a group of states against a group of utilities in a case known as Connecticut versus AEP. He went on to represent some of the country's first climate refugees, people displaced from the village of Kivalina in Alaska by melting ice caps and rising seas. You can get a sense of Powah's passion for using the law to do something about climate from this speech he gave at the Center for the Study of Responsive Law back in 2016.
5: In 2007, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said that climate change was already killing 150,000 people per year. Nonprofit organizations have put the figure higher at more like 400,000 per year and said that by 2030 it could be killing 700,000 people per year.
1: PAWA has been litigating against Exxon in particular for well over a decade. Here's why.
5: Exxon scientists researched global warming in detail in the ni- late 1970s and early 1980s. The scientists found that the level of CO2, carbon dioxide, the main greenhouse gas, was increasing in the atmosphere. And they said that the overwhelming, their word, overwhelming opinion of scientists was that the source of this problem was the burning of fossil fuels, their main product. They declared, the in-house scientists, in 1982 that, quote, a clear scientific consensus has emerged that a doubling of the carbon dioxide from pre-industrial levels would result in an average global temperature increase of about 3 degrees Celsius, which would be an unprecedented and rapid increase in a mere 100 years. They said that there was, quote, unanimous agreement in the scientific community that a temperature of an increase of this magnitude would bring about significant changes in the Earth's climate. Those early cases
1: failed, but they did uncover some documentation of what oil companies knew and when, and they enabled lawyers like Pawa to see what worked and what didn't. In the years since, not only have journalists and activists uncovered documentation of what oil companies knew and when, and what they did to suppress that information, but also science has evolved. Scientist Richard Heady conducted a comprehensive study of emissions from the Industrial Revolution to now, and was able to connect a majority of CO2 emissions to just 100 companies, which he termed the carbon majors. Other scientists have published new studies, too, connecting particular damages to climate change as part of an emerging field known as attribution science. Bob Kopp at Rutgers has shown the percentage of sea level rise that can be attributed to climate change. From there, then, scientists at Climate Central were able to pinpoint precisely how much of the damage inflicted by Superstorm Sandy was attributable to climate change. $2 billion out of the $12 billion in damages. Peter Hoff at the Union of Concerned Scientists has also conducted research in this realm. He's looked at the correlation between climate change and human mortality related to extreme heat waves. And ironically, the success of the oil company's social influence campaigns are a real strength to these cases. Marco Simons with Earth Rights International is representing a group of cities and counties in Colorado that are suing oil companies to cover the costs of fighting increasingly intense wildfires.
4: They did such a good job that the public is more skeptical of climate change now than the oil companies are.
1: That's true. Chevron attorney Ted Boutros has been presenting on behalf of all the oil companies in these suits. It's a solid pick because there are no documents floating around out there about any climate science Chevron conducted way back when. He regularly cites the industry's alignment with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. And instead of contrarian theories, he often says things like this.
5: We recognize that global warming is a serious issue, and but this kind of lawsuit is counterproductive, and it's just legally flawed.
1: Simon says that's too little, too late.
4: The oil companies, you know, wrap themselves in the mantle of the IPCC. So they are, you know, at least publicly fully on board with sort of established climate science at this point. But their disinformation campaign in years past was so successful um, that, you know, still an alarmingly low percentage of the American public even, you know, agrees that sort of human-caused climate change is happening. Mm-hmm. and that fossil fuels are the cause of it, let alone with the urgency of the need to address it. Um, so yeah, they are, you know, their, their campaign was unfortunately um, incredibly successful in, you know, misleading the public and in delaying by decades the action necessary to avert and respond to catastrophic climate change."
1: As Simons and Power and others have brought this second wave of climate liability lawsuits, representing cities, counties, and states against the oil companies, their strategy has shifted. They're focused more locally, they make use of attribution science, and they hammer home the point that information was kept from the public and regulations were actively stopped. In filing these suits in state court rather than federal court, and attempting to hold companies accountable for the financial cost of adapting to climate change, a cost currently shouldered by local taxpayers, these suits seem more winnable. Here's climate law expert Ann Carlson from UCLA explaining.
3: Particularly for those cases filed in California and states like New York, the doctrine of nuisance is very plaintiff favorable. And in particular, the information that defendants knew um, that, that uh, climate change was occurring and then engaged in concealment efforts and campaign efforts to try to dissuade the public is relevant to the question of whether they are liable for nuisance. And so the the, the doctrine is very favorable. You also don't get into some of the constitutional questions, or at least constitutional concerns, that some courts raised in the last rounds, none of those kind of withstood challenge. But um, you don't get into, for example, a question of whether there's a separation of powers problem with the courts trying to tell the executive branch what to do, which is one of the arguments that the defendants are trying to make.
1: These cases are proving to be an effective tool for educating the public, politicians, and the courts. In the case San Francisco and Oakland brought against the top five oil companies, Exxon, Shell, BP, ConocoPhillips, and Chevron, Judge William Alsup ordered a climate science tutorial. He wanted to get an understanding of who knew what and when. There was an overflow room to hold the large crowd of spectators and journalists, and the tutorial was covered in every major newspaper. Ultimately, Alsup wound up repeating one of the industry's favorite tales that without fossil fuels, we wouldn't have had the Industrial Revolution, and that the danger caused by emissions is a necessary trade-off for progress. But there will be other judges. There are a dozen or so active cases right now, and more seem to be filed every month. Former Exxon scientist Ed Garvey got choked up talking about watching the country embrace climate denial. He thinks these suits could help change that.
0: As a means to change the public's perspective on things, I think they may be very valuable. we could get the public to say yeah you know what there really was a lot of damage done and yeah yeah we're part of we're part of it but we we certainly weren't in a position to make these educated decisions the way that people at exxon or people in other oil companies were they were fully aware that their scientists say this is not a good thing and you need to think about what you're doing here getting in court and getting into the news and saying as part of the news cycle yeah We're no longer discussing the science, now we're discussing who's responsible for the damages done. Uh, You know, it's like, okay, yeah, this really was done to the public, this really was done to the the world at large. The science was disputed when, in fact, the issues were, to a large degree, resolved.
1: In addition to the liability suits, other types of climate suits are also being filed. The Attorneys General of Massachusetts and New York launched fraud probes against Exxon in 2016, which opened up more documentation about the company's decades-long deception campaigns. Here's Massachusetts AG Maura Healey explaining the impetus for the probes.
3: We sent subpoenas to Exxon to ask them a simple question. Tell us what you knew when about climate change and the impact that burning fossil fuels was gonna have on the environment. Because based on widely reported, publicly available information, we had concern that Exxon may not have told the truth to the public, to consumers, to its shareholders about what it knew. We sent those subpoenas, they turned around, they sued us to try to stop us from investigating this.
1: The New York fraud probe turned into a full-fledged suit in 2018 when interim New York Attorney General Barbara Underwood filed suit against ExxonMobil for, quote, defrauding investors regarding financial risk the company faces from climate change regulations. In a press release about the suit, AG Underwood said, quote, investors put their money and their trust in Exxon which assured them of the long-term value of their shares, as the company claimed to be factoring the risk of increasing climate change regulations into its business decisions. Yet, as our investigation found, Exxon often did no such thing, Instead, Exxon built a facade to deceive investors into believing that the company was managing the risks of climate change regulation to its business, when, in fact, it was intentionally and systematically underestimating or ignoring them, contrary to its public representations. Oregon attorney Julia Olson and the nonprofit Our Children's Trust is representing a group of young people suing the government for incentivizing dependence on fossil fuels rather than acting on climate. In Minnesota, two women who turned off the valves on a natural gas pipeline used a climate necessity defense, arguing that they have to do whatever they can to stop climate change. The case never wound up going to trial because the government dropped it. Some have even suggested that a RICO case, similar to what brought down Big Tobacco, ought to be filed against oil companies. Sharon Eubanks, the attorney who led that case against the tobacco companies, has been advising on climate litigation recently and sees several parallels.
3: Not unlike Big Tobacco, the oil companies here, their internal documents, make the case of their knowledge and their cover-up. Big Oil knew about the dangers of its products, just as Big Tobacco knew, Big Oil knew going back to the 1960s, notably beginning in 1988, when the United States and the world started moving toward policies that might rein in fossil fuels, the industry stance shifts then from one of support of mainstream views towards an, a very aggressive campaign designed to manufacture uncertainty and doubt in the science that really wasn't there. Oil and gas, like cigarettes, or products. Like any other products, the companies that produce, market, and sell them are liable for the damages that they cause. There's nothing unique about that, especially under the circumstances here where they have misled the public about the product's dangers.
1: As these cases continue to make their way through the courts, attorneys are digging up more and more documentation and testing a variety of strategies. And the information brought forth in these cases is beginning to sink into the collective unconscious a bit. Where climate change is concerned, the world appears to be waking up again. Next time on Drilled.
3: And I hope we can all work effectively together to do something about it. It's a job about as difficult or maybe more difficult than the one we faced beginning in 1941.
1: Drilled is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. The series was reported by me, Amy Westervelt. Our producer and composer is David Whited. Richard Wiles is our executive producer. Our story and concept development consultant is Rekha Murthy. Lucas Lisakowski designed our cover art. Katie Ross, Michael Ann Petrella, and Julia Ritchie provided additional editing. Drilled is supported in part by a generous grant from the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development. You can find Drilled wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to rate and review the podcast. It helps us find listeners. Thanks for listening.